I'd like to turn to Joshua chapter 11. While you're turning there, we're going to cover chapters 11 through 19. I don't know how many of you were here a couple years ago when I preached through Job in 45 minutes. We're kind of covering the same amount of material here. We prepared a handout. If you don't have that handout uh, and there's not one nearby, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. We have some in the back, but you're going to need that to be able to follow along and absorb all the information that I want to be able to give you today. It's going to come at you fast and furious, and I've been praying for clarity all week long. So let me just start with this idea. God has a home for you. Uh, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if he is your Lord and Savior, if you have repented from your sins, turned towards him, towards his righteousness, away from your sinful life, God has a home for you. Now, this is one of the threads that runs through the entire Bible. Let me explain what I'm talking about. I, I'm going to give you a quick summary of how we got to this point in Joshua. I believe 10 and 11 are pivotal uh, chapters in the book of Joshua. Uh, everything swings on them. All the lessons in Joshua, Joshua uh, are centered on 10 and 11. So in Genesis, we see God creating everything, including a man and a woman. He puts them in a garden that he's created for them. Uh, he has a few very simple rules. Uh, they, they don't listen to them. I, I don't know if they don't or they won't or they can't. For whatever reason, they don't listen to the rules. They violate them, uh, and they're evicted. They have no home. They have to fend for themselves. But even in the middle of that, God shows them grace. He gives them uh, clothing. Uh, he, he, he has provided an abundance of food to eat. Only now, they're outside the garden, and they've got to work for all this stuff. It's not going to come easy. And in Genesis three fifteen. Even as the curses are being uttered over Adam and Eve, uh, and, and they're being shown the door to the garden, we see our first glimmer of hope right there in the middle of that dark hour. Uh, God says to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, Adam and Eve have just lost their home. They've been devastated. They just lost the only relationship they had outside of the one they have with each other. And they're being turned out of the garden into a hostile and strange world. And they hear this, this news, you know, and, and we know, you know, those of you who are familiar with theology know that this is the uh, proto-evangelion. Uh, it, it's the, the first hint that there's going to be a redeemer. But here, let me tell you what Adam and Eve hear. We're going to have offspring. We're going to survive this. We're not going to die out there in the wilderness. There's a future for us. And the story of mankind, because that's all there is of mankind at this point, finding a new home has its beginning right there. Well, they're around for quite some time. You know, Adam lived to be 917 years old. Their offspring, as they come, become more and more numerous. They populate the world, but they've got a problem. They're evil, and they're corrupt, and... Uh, and God wants to fix this. Uh, all of them are even corrupt except one of their offspring, which is a man named Noah. Now, Noah's not perfect, but he's as good as a guy can get. When, when God calls Noah righteousness, uh, righteous, he's calling him righteous compared to other men. So God reboots. 
He wipes out everyone except Noah and the small family that Noah's gathered around him and enough animals to go out and repopulate the earth. So the flood comes, the waters recede. Noah now is homeless. He has to find a new home. In a very real sense, he's a lot like Adam and Eve. Everything's starting over again for him. Eventually, Adam and Eve's offspring become Noah. Noah's offspring produce a man named Abram. Now, we know him as Abraham. Abram's told to leave his home. And uh, the God is going to make him into a mighty nation. Now, do you see the pattern that's starting here? God chooses somebody, Adam and Eve, and then they're homeless. They need a home. Uh, God singles out Noah. He becomes homeless. He needs a home. Abram is homeless. He needs a home. Uh, uh, all these people are becoming homeless as they turn towards God. But Abraham receives another glimmer of hope, a promise from God. His offspring will have a home, an earthly home. And that home will be Canaan. It comes to be known as the promised land. God is going to give him a home. It's not the same as the garden. It doesn't have the perfection that the garden has. Uh, but it, it is uh, everything that God has designed it to be. And the, you can see that the relationship between mankind and God is not totally repaired yet. But God has a plan to fix that relationship. There's evidence that God is going to repair the relationship. Well, Abram becomes Abraham. His family begins to grow. And one of his offspring is a man named Jacob. Now, Jacob, the first thing we find out about Jacob is he's a sojourner. He's a nomad. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't have a permanent home. And the promise of a home is passed to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They wind up in Egypt. Before Jacob dies, he blesses the sons, and uh, they hear that their home is not in Egypt. Now, it probably looked like their home. They had been there for quite some time. They were enjoying the riches of Egypt. Uh, they had the favor of Pharaoh, and it looked like a pretty nice family, but this is not where they belong. Things go well in Egypt at first. They begin to multiply. The sons are there for a number of generations, and their sons begin to multiply into 12 gigantic tribes. Now, the tribes are in Egypt for over 400 years, and all of a sudden, things start going bad. There's so many of them that Pharaoh gets suspicious. He's afraid that if an, an enemy nation attacks them, that the Hebrews will take their side and the Egyptians will be overrun. So, uh, they become enslaved by the Egyptians. One of Jacob's descendants, which would make him one of Abraham's descendants, one of Noah's descendants, one of Adam and Eve's descendants, is chosen by God to leave, lead these tribes out of Egypt. It's a man named Moses, who apparently looks a lot like Charleston Heston. <laughs> there he is, right there. Moses becomes what? Homeless. Homeless. He's got to leave where he is to make things happen the way, the way God wants him to. But he goes to Egypt to show God's people the way to their new home. He's going to lead them to their new home. Along the way, the people wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Two faithful young men gain prominence. As a matter of fact, besides Moses, they're the only two faithful men in the entire nation. Their names are Caleb and Joshua. And after a lot of fussing, 
and a lot of stumbling with God's people kicking and rebelling nearly every step of the way. And this, this is an, a, a portion of the story that is endemic to the, peop- to the Hebrew people. They don't handle these things real well. They, they don't do the things that God tells them to do. They don't, they don't follow his direction. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had one or two very simple directions. They weren't able to follow them. The Hebrews have the same struggle. They're rebelling every step of the way. Moses, however, gets them to the border of Canaan, to the promised land. But Joshua, Joshua is going to be the one to lead God's people in to their new home. But Joshua and his people are going, this, is the, this was one of the big surprises of the book of Joshua, wasn't it? When they get there, they're going to have to fight. They're going to have to fight. They leave Egypt ready for battle. Now they're going to engage in the battle. God guarantees the victory, but they're going to have to battle for their new home. Who will they have to fight? Well, they've got to fight the people that are living in Canaan, in the Promised Land. Not only do they have to fight them, but they have to eliminate them. Now, if we look at the overall narrative, we find out that God's people really kind of have three choices here. Uh, they can subdue these people. They can make them slaves. They can evict them. They can make them leave the country, or they can kill them. They are not to live among them. They are not to assimilate them, make them part of their culture. They are not allowed to be assimilated into their culture. God is very careful to explain a number of times that they're not to have intimate relationships with them because they would have a tendency to lead God's people away into worshiping other gods. So, all that, as we walk through Joshua, we realize that sounds pretty brutal. That sounds pretty harsh. What are we supposed to learn from this? Here's what we're supposed to learn. And here's where it all comes together in chapter 10 and 11. The people of Israel, their story, their story is a metaphor for our Christian walk. In other words, when, when we look at Israel, we should see ourselves. We should see their struggles as being very similar to the struggles that we have in our efforts to be godly people, in our efforts to follow Jesus Christ, in our efforts to be like him, in our efforts to imitate him. We should see their struggles as very similar to ours, our struggle to stay faithful, our struggle to be holy, our struggle to attain the new home that we've been promised. If we don't see ourselves in Israel in the Old Testament, if we think somehow that we're above them, that we're smarter than them, that we're more sophisticated than they are. If we believe that, that, listen, if we believe this, if we believe that we're under grace and they were under the law, we're going to miss almost everything that the Old Testament has to teach us. We're going to miss the incredible grace that God sheds upon his people throughout the narrative of the Old Testament. We're going to miss a major element of the character and nature of God. We'll miss the story of a people chosen by God to be his messengers, to be bearers of his image, to be conformed to his image, to be a people that wander under his blessing for a very, very long time, a blessing that they don't deserve, and then are taken home. Doesn't that sound like our story? Isn't that what we're doing? We're wandering under his blessing for a very, very long time, and we believe that he's going to take us home. 
We don't deserve the blessing. We haven't earned it. We can't do anything to earn it. He just gives it because he's God. We'll miss the guarantee that we have. Thinking that their guarantee is different than ours, we'll miss the guarantee that we have in that blessing. One of the vital lessons of Joshua. You see, before Israel can live in their new home, brothers and sisters, it has to be cleansed. It has to be cleaned out. All godlessness has to be washed away. Israel has to be absolutely ruthless in eliminating all that is unholy. That's why Joshua is so brutal. They want to demonstrate to us the price of this. Joshua and Israel are teaching us that rebellion against God has a price. And it is devastating. Those who reject God will die in a horrible, terrifying death because God is holy and will not tolerate unholiness, not in his home, not in his people. And we have to see this metaphor. See, the Canaanites are sin. Joshua is judgment. Judgment comes upon those who sin. It's inescapable. It is devastating. Nothing can stand in its way. The Canaanites are sin. Joshua is judgment. And the picture we should get from that as Joshua swings his sword is one of how we should be equally as ruthless in eliminating sin from our lives, in refusing to give it a foothold, in avoiding having any type of relationship with it. We're not out to kill sinners, brothers and sisters. We're out to kill sin in us. And the victory is guaranteed. And our new home is permanent and assured. It is eternal. Now that's what we're going to see in Joshua 11 through 19. We're going to see home. Home. So we saw Joshua take the southern region in chapter 10. There were five kings who banded together uh, to fight against the Gibeonites, but they're really fighting against God's people, really opposing God. And the five kings in the southern region paid for their opposition with their lives and the lives of all those who followed them, who associated with them. In chapter 11, we're going to see that pattern repeat itself. The kings of the north are going to band together against Israel, against God's people, against God. And Joshua 11:4 says, And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, a number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. This is a powerful army. This is a much larger force than assembled against, the, the, uh, against Joshua down in the south. They believed, like the kings in the south did, that if they can just muster enough force, they can overcome God's people. Maybe they think they can overcome God with enough force. Joshua eleven six 6 said, And the Lord said to Joshua, I mean, Joshua is now facing a much, much larger army. With, and this idea of these horses and chariots is significant because back then those were the tanks. Those were the way that you just ran over your apparent, uh, opponent, and they had plenty of them. So Joshua's looking at this, and the Lord says to him in verse 6, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, God promises them the victory, but he does it in a very unique way. 
He does it. He says, you're going to get victory, and you're going to do it in such a manner that nobody is going to be able to get credit for this victory except me, God in heaven. Because as you attack these people, as you get victory over them one by one, I want you to take their horses, which are the weapons of war. I want you to take their chariots, which are the mobility of war. And I want you to burn the chariots and hobble the horses. Because nobody, when this battle is done, is going to be able to say, well, Joshua had a great strategy. He's a fantastic warrior. Well, what they're going to be able to say is they've got a great God. And God's people will win their battles on the resources that God gives them. They don't need the resources and the, the tools that are out there in the world. All they need is God. God gets the victory. God gets the glory. You see, God's people just don't need the resources of the world. All they really need are the gifts and talents that God gave them. And you know what? Haven't we seen that God has been equipping them all along the way? God has been giving them gifts and talents all along the way of their journey. He's equipped them for these battles ahead of time. When they left Egypt, they left ready for battle. And now here it is. So the results of the northern campaign are similar. All the areas are taken by Joshua. And the people who fought against the army of God are totally eliminated. They suffer the same fate. Just like Pharaoh in the times of, pla of, of plagues, you know, they were stubborn. Pharaoh was stubborn. Uh, Pharaoh saw all the evidence of God moving among him and his people. He refused to accept it. And in the end, there's death. There's darkness that descends on the world. Okay? The same thing happened with these people in the north. They're unwilling to bow down and surrender to him, to God, or his people. And they die. Those who do not surrender to God die. Joshua 11.20 kind of puts a coat on this and you know here, here's a verse for you to talk about over lunch for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses that's a tough verse to accept but by the time Israel is done fighting, they have control of most of the promised land. Uh, chapter 12 lists the, the kings that Moses conquered, which were east of the Jordan. It also mentions the kings that Joshua encountered, which were west of the Jordan, uh, all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea almost. Chapter 13 shows us the areas that are yet to be conquered. That'd be the area in green on the map here. You can see that on your handout. Those areas will prove to be significant as we go forward, uh, all the way up through Solomon's time. Um, all that's left now is for the country to be divided up between the 13 tribes. 13 tribes. You know, we've heard a lot about the 12 tribes, but let, let me kind of lay this out for you. This, this, this gets a little bit complicated, but I, I think you'll be able to follow. You can take a look at your, your handout. Um, let me explain the difference between the number of sons and the number of tribes. So here are the, on the screen, here are the 12 original sons of Jacob in order of their birth. You have Reuben, Reuben uh, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. 
Now, those were the 12 sons. And we hear much about the 12 tribes. Uh, the easy association would be to make the, each son represents one tribe, but that's not really the case. Listen, when Jacob and his sons were in Egypt, they were living there under the blessing, under the oversight of Joseph, who was one of his sons as well. Joseph had two sons of his own, Manasseh and Ephraim. Uh, in Genesis 48, Jacob blesses his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and then takes them as his own sons. Listen to what I have, Genesis 48, 5. And, and, and this is Jacob to Joseph. And, and now your son, your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. They're going to be equal to, to Jacob's direct sons. Jacob takes the boys as his two sons, making them brothers to the original 12 sons. And then he says this in, in verse 6 of Genesis 48, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall, and the, the inference is, they shall all be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So, if you're just following the numbers here, and not all the confusion about the names, we see that Jacob now has how many sons? Fourteen. He had twelve, he just added two to them. The original twelve, and, and Ephraim and Manasseh. But Jacob, Joseph himself, dies before everybody returns to Canaan. So now we've got fourteen minus one, right? How many is that? Okay, everybody's with it. At least most of you are. That's good. Okay, so over time, a long period of time, the 13 sons grow into 13 tribes. 13 very large, very extended families. So the tribes go to Canaan with Joshua and Moses. But as we see, as we're going to see very shortly, the land is divided up amongst 12 of the tribes. What happened to the 13th tribe? Well, we'll get to that in just a second, but I'll give you a hint who it is. Many of you already know. Who is it? Levi. Levi. So as it begins sorting out the land, the very first parcels go, uh, that are signed are east of the Jordan River. Now, these go to Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh because Moses told them they could have that land. A couple chapters ago, um, they agreed to go with their brothers across the river and fight for Jordan, but on the condition that once the battle was won, they would be able to go back and live in their lands east of the Jordan. So that now we've got two and a half tribes east of the Jordan. That leaves ten and a half tribes over west of the Jordan. Still with me? Okay, ten and a half tribes are going to be west of Jordan and get land over there. Now, all the details about how the land is divided up, you can take a look in chapters 14 through 19. But let me call your attention to a hidden lesson in all of these numbers and uh, in the way that Joshua determines who will get what areas. In Joshua 14:2, it says that their inheritance was by lot. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. I know, I know. I told you ten and a half. He says nine and a half. We'll get to that in a second. I want to talk about these lots. Joshua and Moses determine who settled where by casting lots. Now, we heard about lots back in Joshua 7 when there was sin in the camp, when they suffered uh, a defeat at Ai unexpectedly. 
uh, God had them all parade before Joshua, and they cast lots until he finally narrowed everything down to, to uh, Achan. Uh, so, and the idea was that as they cast the lots, the, the determining factor was God and how he, he uh, determined that the lots would come out. Their, their, their casting of lots was a gesture of trust in God, leaving the decision up to him. So that's exactly what's happening in Joshua 14. Now, Jewish tradition suggests to us that there were two bowls. One bowl had slips of paper, papyrus, with all of the the lands marked out. The other bowl had names, and the leaders would pick one from one bowl and then match it up with a choice from the other bowl, and, and that's how they determined what areas the tribes would get. But look at this in the second half of verse 4 of 14. And no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. Moses decreed that the Levites would receive no land only cities. And we'll see why when we get to chapters 20 and 21. But if we move, remove the Levites from the list, what do we get? It brings the total number of tribes down to 12, and you've got nine and a half to the west and two and a half to the east. You have 12 tribes getting land. And the map ends up looking like this. Now, you're going to want to open up your, your handouts. Uh, I think that's on the, the outside page. You can take a look at it. No, it's on the inside page. And there's a copy of it in your bulletin as well. I think the copy in the bulletin is a little bit larger, and at least I could see it better. I'm going to look at this because I'm going to tell you something. There's a promise in this map. There's a promise fulfilled in this map, and there's a promise for you and me in this map. And we're going to kind of unpack it, one that can help us today. Remember a little earlier I mentioned that Jacob gave a blessing to Joseph and his two sons? Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, that was back when they were in Egypt. Those blessings took place 430 years prior to Joshua's time. But we see in our map that there are lands assigned to the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. The ones that, that uh, Jacob said, you, you will gain an inheritance. Okay, It happens just as, J as Jacob said in Genesis 48. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are and the children you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. There it is right there on the map. It happens exactly as, as Jacob says. Jacob's words come true 430 years later as the descendants of Manasseh and Ephraim get their land. Now, here's the significant part of this. Right after Jacob gave the blessing over Manasseh and Ephraim, he knew he was dying. He called the rest of his sons together, and uh, he, he wanted to bless them. Uh, he gave them, uh, if you go back and take a look at the blessings, they're kind of an odd mixture of blessing and hope and uh, a mixture of some cautions in there. Uh, all this happens in Genesis chapter 49, the blessings will reveal the promise of the map and give us hope to, to, to know that God knows exactly where we're going and how we're going to get there, that he has equipped us for our journey and he's going to take us home. So as I summarize these ancient blessings that Jacob uttered, 
I want you to notice how each area of land that the tribes will receive is uniquely suited to the character of the tribe, to the strengths and the weaknesses of that particular tribe, and how Jacob prophesies in detail 430 years before the lots are cast. So let's start with Reuben. Reuben, even though he's the firstborn, even though by birthright he's entitled to a double blessing uh, because of his impulsive sin and the disrespect of his father, you know what Reuben did? Reuben laid down with the concubine of his father. And uh, right here, Jacob says, you thought I didn't know about that, didn't you? He said, well, Reuben is not going to receive the blessing of the firstborn. Okay? As a matter of fact, he gets allotted a piece of land that he's going to have to defend for the rest of his life. It's the outer perimeter of the land that the, the Hebrews have been given. Simon, uh, Simeon and Levi, the next oldest, are, are paired together because of their violence at Shechem in defending their sister Dinah and uh, the bloodshed that occurred there. Neither one of them, as a result of that, will have their own portion in Canaan. Simeon's portion will be allotted inside that of Judah, Judah, and Levi will get no portion at all. He's going to be scattered throughout the land. Judah, who is the fourth oldest, receives a greater blessing than the first three. This is highly unusual in Hebrew tradition. But Jacob tells Judah that he's going to be a royal tribe. The kings will come out of Judah. As a matter of fact, if you follow the story, although you find out that the king of kings comes out of the tribe of Judah. Zebulun receives a blessing before his older brother, Issachar. And uh, at first, his territory is landlocked. But over time, uh, his territory will stretch out north and go all the way to the coast to a port, Sidon. And that's coincident with the blessing that he receives from Jacob. Uh, Issachar, uh, his descendants are going to be surrounded and sheltered by his brothers. He'll become a hard worker, but eventually will be enslaved. Dan is is portrayed as a wise judge, but he's also described as having behavior like a snake, which he proves, uh, and his tribe proves, by instead of taking the land that they're allotted, they get afraid because the Philistines look so strong, and they kind of slither up to the north and take a, a, a large village of artists and poets and that sort of thing, people who are gentle. Gad's tribe will occupy Gilead, an area that lies in the outer borders of the promised land, Out of necessity, they're going to have to become mighty warriors in order to defend their land and protect it. Asher's tribe will be highly prosperous, Jacob tells him. They're going to occupy fertile land right there on the coast where there are major trade highways and a number of major ports. They're going to be very prosperous because of that. Naphtali's descendants are going to flourish in their land, uh, but the description of Naphtali being doe-like is kind of, it's a nice compliment, it's beautiful, but it's a stark contrast to the warrior brothers that he's surrounded with. Joseph's descendants receive the greatest blessings of all, and you see they have a huge portion of land, but Jacob says that they're near a spring, and you notice their land straddles the Jordan River, And his branches run over the wall, Jacob says, to the other side of the Jordan. And what we see with Manasseh is they're divided from the outset. They're cut in two. Benjamin's tribe is going to be a group of aggressive warriors, uh, at times making peace, at times battling. And if you see where Benjamin is, uh, they're on what will be the dividing line between the northern and the southern kingdom. They're going to soak up a lot of tension because of that. 
So by the time we reach chapter 19, the lands have been allotted. Caleb gets a few cities, Judah gets some cities, and Joshua gets some cities, and, and uh, there's a few stumbles here and there. Like I said, Dan takes the wrong land. That'll have long-term uh, consequences. Ephraim was afraid of taking all the land he was given. He goes to Joshua and complains, and Joshua goes, you know, the Lord's given you the victory. Just go take your land. Ephraim just can't seem to do it. But the land is occupied, and by and large, it's under the control of Israel. There's still some battles ahead. There's still some arrangements need to be made. Cities of refuge need to be established. We'll look at that in chapter 20. Uh, the Levi's cities need to be established. We'll look at that in 21. But all in all, I think if you try and absorb this, uh, you've probably gotten quite a bit more detail and information than you expected when you walked in here this morning. So uh, I wanted you to see, I wanted you to see that none of the battles that Joshua encountered, none of the battles that Joshua fought were left to chance. 430 years before Joshua arrived in Canaan, Jacob prophesied as to how the land would be divided up. And that's exactly what happened. Not only that, but God made sure that the people who got the land were uniquely gifted and equipped to live in the land that they received. The land was tailored to their, their capabilities. God delivers the prophecy. 430 years later, Joshua casts lots depending on the Lord to give the tribes the land where they belong, and God does exactly that. He raises his children up and puts them in a home uniquely designed for them. Now, what does that mean to you and me today? It means a ton. We're just going to cover two things that we can, we can put application to. The tribes give us a number of pictures, though. Who do they give us a number of pictures of? Ourselves ourselves. Remember, the story is a shadow of our story. We should be able to see ourselves in the tribes of Judah. We should be able to see ourselves in Israel's story, which happened so long ago. Here's one thing we can gather from, from the story of the tribes. It's not an important lesson, but I think it's a pretty good one. One that may cause you to look around and look at brothers and sisters that are not part of this church, maybe a little bit differently. When you look at the tribes, they're a pretty diverse lot. A lot of different characters, a lot of different personalities. I mean, they're all over the map, aren't they? Each brother has his strength. Each brother has his weaknesses. Each tribe has their strengths. Each tribe has their weaknesses. But 4,000 years ago, we have to see this picture concentrated right here in this tiny country in the Mideast, 90 miles north to south, 35 miles east to west, concentrated right there, is the entire family of God. These are all of God's people right here in one spot. And each tribe, in spite of its failings, in spite of its weaknesses, in spite of its stumbles, in spite of the fact that they can't do what God has called them to do, each tribe is part of that family. Each tribe has an inheritance. Fast forward four millennia. Take a look at the dizzying array of churches and denominations we have in the body of Christ. And each one that truly calls upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is part of the family of God. Each one has its strengths. 
Each one has its weaknesses, but each one has its inheritance, a home, just like the 12 tribes. I mean 13, right? Now eventually, I mean, again, look at the picture we're seeing here, because eventually the tribes begin to fight. And knowing the modern church, the way we are all familiar with the modern church, we can almost predict what they're going to fight about. You know what they're going to fight about? How they worship. How they worship. The first one happens right there in Joshua, in chapter 22. There's a minor skirmish. The eastern tribes put up an altar. The western tribes get mad over it. They're going to go to war. You can't do that. You're not doing it right, so on and so forth. It's a misunderstanding. It gets cleared up. But it's over how they're going to worship. Many years later, after the time of David and Solomon, there will be an all-out war. The root of that war will come from the tribe of Dan. Remember, they took the wrong land. They took the land that was not allotted to them. They're so far north, they're going to build an altar on their land because they don't want their people to have to travel south of Jerusalem to worship. So they build an altar and they don't do it the way the guys in the south are doing it. All of a sudden, there's all-out war. And the results of that war are that most of the tribes are scattered forever. They never come back together. And it's all over how they worship. Division starts with how they worship. Isn't that ironic? You would think, you would think that we, as, as the church universal would have learned this lesson just from what happens here. I don't think we have. A lot of folks in a lot of different denominations like to judge themselves as right and everybody else as wrong. We allow ourselves to get divided over, look at the things, music, style of music, prayer, baptism, liturgy, communion, style of preaching. In other words, We allow ourselves to get divided over non-essential doctrines. We allow our distinctives, those things that make us unique, those things that make us the body of Christ and make the body of Christ so rich and so diverse, we allow those distinctives to be mistaken as essentials and begin to judge others by everything but the only real essential, which is Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that WBF will be set apart from all that. I hope and pray that we will be able to enjoy and proclaim and celebrate our distinctives, but never allow them to divide us from the body of Christ. Never allow them to make us feel superior to other churches who call upon his name as Lord and Savior, but practice their worship differently. In short, let us rejoice our distinctives and who make, they're, they're what makes us who we are. Let's not divide over them. So there's one lesson that you can take home from the map. Here's another one. And how these tribes got here. Goes back to the journey of the Jews. Each of them flawed, each of them in desperate need of grace. Yet, God not only promised them a home, but gifted them, equipped them to get there. They were equipped for the journey. They were equipped to live in the land that God gave them. Just in case they had their doubts, God gave Jacob 
a message that was 430 years old by the time it came true to assure them that they were in the right place. Although there were battles to be fought, they were in the right place, and God, if they kept their focus on him, would win those battles for them. It's a shadow of our story. It's a promise to us. We are in need of grace. We are homeless. We are diverse. We are flawed. We are sometimes unable to keep our focus on God, sometimes incapable of doing the things he's called to do. Yet God has promised an eternal home for us. How do we know that's true? Jesus said it. Romans, John, I'm sorry, John's 14, 1 through 4. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's home are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. How do we know the way where he's going? He told us. He just told us. Just like Jacob told Israel. Except we have a greater blessing. Joshua and Israel only had part of the story. They were going through the things that they were going through so that we could learn the truth here today. They were living the story so that we could read it today so we could know that their story is true for us as well. How do we know that's true? Listen to Paul. Pastor Scott read it earlier in the, in the service. Romans 15, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. The Old Testament was written for our instruction so that we might have hope. That doesn't fit in with the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. There's no hope in the law. I think sometimes when we read the New Testament, we read the word scripture, we're thinking, oh, he's talking about Paul and Peter and so on and so forth. The Old Testament. So we learn from Joshua, brothers and sisters. We learn that God will get us through. We learn that no matter how big the army we're facing and how strong and how numerous they get, that God will get us through, that he not only has equipped us for the journey, but he'll get us home. I think those are two valuable take-homes. But what we learn about God you know what we learned about God? In a dangerous world, it fights us in everything we do. Evicted from the garden, left to fend for ourselves, in a world that wants to kill us, God is safe. We're safe in God. We find our safety in God. We find our permanence in God. We can trust Him. We can believe his word. He not only has the world in his hands, we just found out he's got all time and space in his hands. And if you understand that, brothers and sisters, if you understand how much God has in his hands, you know that right now he has you in his hands. 
And as scripture says, he's never going to let go. He's not going to leave us here. He's equipped us for the journey. He's equipping us to live in our new homes. And our new homes are in heaven with him. Let's pray.